Well, as many of you know, the uh, elders in the church have asked me once a month, first Sunday of the month, to engage in a, uh, to move apart from whatever series I'm in and engage in a hot, to- hot topic. Well, there you have it. <laughs> All right, so we're going to, as kind of a springboard passage, we're going to look at Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, and that'll be weaved into the sermon at one point. And it's always nice to begin with the words of, of Christ. So Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, hear now the word of God. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to have a wise and yet at the same time temperate disposition toward those things by which we're surrounded that you've called us to engage, and not the least of which is the topic we're going to be talking about this morning. Help us, Father, to, to understand what your word says about this and to at the same time proclaim that word from the rooftops, but lovingly and, and gently at the same time, boldly. So we do pray, Father, that you would help us to understand what your word tells us about what it means to be in certain types of relationships. So we pray for your spirit and your guidance in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am uh, you know, old enough to remember a time when virtually all associations of amorous, associations of love, sexual, sexual relations, were almost uniquely that of a man and a woman in wedlock. I, I remember when I was young, it was, people didn't live together, you know, they, they got married, and, that, that, and it was a man and a woman, and that was just, the, that was clear to everybody. And it wasn't until college that I was confronted with a departure from this, you know, now we're moving, you know, from the 60s into the, into the 70s. And now, I had come to faith by this time, as I wasn't raised in a Christian household, but by now, I was in college, and I was a Christian. But I was, I was a novice in my faith. But I knew enough scripture, even then, to realize that this departure did not seem to comport with what the Bible taught concerning human sexuality. Like I, even then, I'm like, I knew enough Bible to go, this is, doesn't seem right. And I remember engaging in a conversation with a friend of mine, a learned friend, who, who at the time probably knew his Bible better than I knew my Bible. And he somewhat chastised me for my, I would say, relatively undeveloped opinion on the matter. Now, I later came to realize that his chastisement was not something he had created. He was parroting what he had already heard because this chastisement had become a bit of a mantra for those seeking to advocate for the divergence from what has been called the more traditional household. I mean, I would argue that it's the biblical household, but it would, you know, people who are trying to be a little less you know, confrontational will say, well, this is the traditional household. But the argument... The chastisement was something that I began to hear with regularity, and it went something like this. 
My friend, with a very strident tone, asked me, why do you care about what people do in the privacy of their own bedroom? Well, I have to say, I think that argument, at least then for me, had some teeth. I felt a bit stultified. I'm like, hmm, I don't know where to go with that. With that. I felt like the, the, the anchor on my, my boat of, of ethic and logics had hit the bottom, and I came to a grinding halt. The anchor, the anchor was in coral, and I use coral because the thing about coral is coral will break. It wasn't in a rock. It was in coral. And up on top on the boat, I still felt the winds blowing, and I felt there was a time when, when the, the ethics, at least what I, how I understood it, ripped the anchor free from the coral. Because I started thinking about that objection. Why do you care about what people do in the privacy of their own bedroom? And after a while, I realized, if it's what they're doing in the privacy of their own bedroom, why do I know about it? I don't know, you know, I don't know what my best friends do in the privacy. You know, I mean, maybe in counseling, you know, but even then, like TMI. <laughs> you don't hear that objection anymore. It's gone the way of, of all the earth because this idea of tolerating is no longer the word. A tolerating evolved into acceptance, and acceptance has evolved into sanction and celebration. And a lack of willingness to celebrate will not be tolerated. I dare say a general fear has hit the atmosphere on this issue. I mean, I have to say, I mean, I, I feel the trepidation. I'm, I'm basically going to argue that, you know, sexual relationships should be within a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And for some reason, that's making me nervous. That's the way this culture kind of has hit me, and I'm guessing many of you as well. Because a mere, a mere whisper of disapproval can be met with severe social castigation. Believing that romantic relationships, and by romantic I really mean sexual relationships, belong to men and women within the covenant of marriage, that has become now the topic that is relegated to a discussion within your own bedroom. Don't bring that into the public square. You bring that into the public square, and you're going to find yourself on the receiving end of a lot of heat. Now, in the off chance that you've been hibernating over the last few years, our culture is on the throes of Pride Month. And talk about hot topics, there may not be a hotter topic than this topic. Target is under fire for their pride selection because they hired a Satanist to design clothing, you know, and it's in the kid children's section. And then they were like, okay, maybe we shouldn't do it. And then there were bomb threats. I mean, it's it's hot issue. Budweiser 
It's hitting record lows because they decided to utilize a trans person to sell their beer. The Dodgers can't seem to decide if it's appropriate to honor a demonic hate group whose sole agenda is to blaspheme the Roman Catholic Church to be part of their celebration. Biological men are entering and usually winning women's sporting events. Drag queens are offended because parents are resisting their ability and freedom to do story time for children at the public library. It goes on and on. I mean, this is all fresh. I mean, if I started digging further, there's plenty. It is a hot, hot issue. And civil discourse is discouragingly elusive. It is really hard to have, like, a civil discussion with somebody who disagrees with you on this issue. I feel like the entire topic is a bunch of little Dutch boys with their fingers in the dam. And the moment you touch them, they're just going to pull the fingers out and it's going to be a deluge. That's the way I feel. And I'm guessing you might feel the same way. I'm reminded, and this goes back a ways, of a private thread I had a few years ago with a writer from Wired magazine who had requested to be removed from the distribution list of columns that I was writing for, for the local newspaper. I don't know how he got on my distribution list, but they would go out to, you know, whatever, hundreds or thousands of people. And he wrote me and basically said, take me off your list. Now, this guy, I never met him personally, but we would interact. And we didn't agree on a lot of things. But I always enjoyed interacting with him because he was smart He was in touch with the culture, and I felt like it was a good way for me to test my thinking. I like to test my thinking with people who disagree with me. So sometimes he'd make a point, and I'd be like, oh, that's a cogent point. Sometimes he'd make a point, and I'm like, I don't think so. But all of that ended on this topic. I basically wrote a column in the Daily Breeze saying that Christianity believes that marriage should be between a man and a woman, sex should be between a man and a woman. Again, I didn't feel like it was all that controversial. I felt like I'm just explaining to you the position. Whether or not you want to agree with it, I guess it's going to be up to you, but that's the position. And I actually had a copy here of the the dialogue, so I'll let you, I'm not going to give the name, but just to get a feel. So he had asked me, take me off your list. And I wrote, I certainly respect your wishes, but since I enjoy The measured and rational approach you take on your topics, I'd be interested to know what bothers you in my apologetic for biblical Christianity. Either way, I'll remove you from this list, whether you respond or not, good day. That was just my effort, trying to be as nice as I could be, that I wanted to know what's the problem. He wrote, the anti-gay bigotry is what bothers me. Thank you for removing me from your list. All right, well, maybe at that point I should have moved on. (laughs) But I wrote, please indulge me because I would like to understand your point. I really wanted to understand because that's kind of harsh. Are you saying that if someone believes homosexuality or adultery or polyamorism, etc., is immoral, that it naturally follows that they're a bigot? 
Like, explain this to me. Like, how did I become a bigot? What about NAMBLA, an organization seeking to lower the consent age to foster physical intimacy with young boys? What about them? All right. What I was making here was kind of an argument by analogy. And I realized we live in a culture that doesn't like that. When you make an argument by analogy, you're kind of going, look at, let's test the leakability of your position. For example, there was a pastor years ago, an Irish pastor, who came up with this phrase that's very popular today. And that, the, the, the basic argument he makes is, the action which is right is the action which makes the most people happy. All right? So that's what, you know, the, lar- the largest number of people happy for the largest time. So that's what makes it good. And so I remember kind of going, okay, what if 51% of the people want to steal the property of the other 49%? Does that make it good? Which, by the way, is kind of happening. <laughs> but you see, it's kind of like you need, you need to test it to see if it works. That's all I was doing. I was kind of going, let me pick something you and I both agree is wrong and see if you can utilize your system and have it work. Well... This is what he said. He says, you have a feeling of enormous confidence. I'm not really sure where that... But in long years of reporting, I've learned that being right does not correlate reliably with feeling right. And though you make an outward show of niceness and reasonableness, the assumptions you make are vicious. A simple statement that I bore your anti-gay bigotry brought forth a cheap and ugly reply linking homosexuality with child abuse. You can dress this up any way you like, make whatever little excuses and rhetorical maneuvers that might please you, but you've made yourself clear and your message is ugly. That kind of hurt my feelings. (laughs) Man. Man, oh man. Losing control of myself here. (laughs) I mean, whether justified or not, I don't know about you, I don't find it easy being accused of being vicious and bigoted and cheap and ugly. I was not seeking to take a cheap shot. I just wanted to hear from somebody who I felt was kind of a cultural icon, a clear-thinking person, by what standard do you say yes to one and no to the other? Like, what, what's your governing principle? How do you do that? Because the members of one group of people who have intense desires can just as easily assert that they are, excuse the pun here, wired that way as the members of another group. They can say, look, at this is the way God made me. So how can you say these people are right and these people are wrong? Like, what do you do? Where do you go to make that decision? Like somebody, you know, and that was over, that conversation was over, but normally the argument with Nambla is, well, they need to be consenting adults. I'm like, okay, now, I may agree with that, but where where is that written? Because Nambla this North American Man-Boy Lover Association, they'll argue that when you start putting age restrictions, you're engaging in ageism. They actually have a name for it. You're an ageist. 
So now the attack, you know, so this, by the way, is transformed, and I wonder how this guy would feel about the drag queens in the public library with the five-year-olds. Because that wasn't happening when we went back and forth, but it's happening now. So by what standard do you do this? Well, with a recognition of the delicate nature of this issue, what's our take on this? You know, I mean, this is not what we talk about every Sunday. What is the Christian take on what's going on in the culture in which we live? Because the ethical waters of this culture have really become a swamp. And not merely on this issue. And I think we're finding ourselves continually as we're going through the swamp, getting caught in the marsh, hitting a log. What what do we do as we're going through? And if you're living a life that's somewhere, in some respect, outside of this little cultus we call a church, this is going to hit you. What do you do? How do you engage this? Do you just get the axe out and start swinging? Or... Do you kind of like retreat into your little, like, take your dinghy and go into the bushes and stay in the institutional church, don't make waves as the swamp gets deeper and thicker? Because let me tell you something, you are naive to think this is not going to come into the church. Matter of fact, it's already way into the church. You're naive if you don't think this is going to affect your children. It's going to affect your children. And the idea that you should exit, that you should somehow remove yourself and disenfranchise yourself from the discussion is exactly what the enemy wants. You need to figure out how to engage the darkness by which you're surrounded. And there's no shortage of biblical examples of this happening. It wasn't as if John the Baptist was only talking to the strong Christians. He was addressing Herod. What happened to John the Baptist when he started questioning a political figure's sexual relationship? Do you know what happened to him? Yeah, they cut his head off. That wasn't church discipline. So at some level, when we read the Bible, we're called to engage the culture. As a matter of fact, if you were in our apologetics conference, the one, the Bonson conference, you'll learn that one of the uses of the law is it reveals to us we're sinful people. And if we, don't, if we don't proclaim the law of God, then people aren't going to be able to look at the law, look at themselves, go, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. It functions in bringing us to Christ. So we need to be willing to open our mouths at some level. I'm going to approach this. I'm going to finish this up with four sections that I'm going to hit fairly rapidly. And the four points are this. Is this, in fact, a departure from biblical Christianity, what we're seeing around us? Secondly, where is this coming from? Like, how has this confusion become so prevalent? I call this the great exchange. And when I say great, great doesn't mean good. It's big, the big exchange. Three, I'm going to answer some common objections, things that might be asked in Q&A. And then finally, how do we engage the world when it comes to such a powerful force as this? First, is this, is what I'm saying valid? Is this, in fact, unbiblical? Is is the idea that 
Romantic sexual relationships belong to men and women in the covenant of marriage. Am I presenting something that I'm just taking from the hip according to my own likes and dislikes, or is it, in fact, the biblical teaching? I would say over and against some modern expositors because there are people with Bibles in their hands who are going to say, well, no, the word homosexuality didn't show up in a Bible until 1947. Well, that, that might be true, but, but the behavior has been in the Bible for 2,000 years. The fact that there are certain translators that use certain language doesn't mean it's not addressed in the Bible. Other people will say, well, no, no, no. All of the things you know, that, that kind of critique these uh, relationships are revolving around things like temple prostitution, and, but you know, if it's a monogamous relationship, then it's fine, and you guys are just kind of imposing your view upon the text. Well, the, the exegesis of these people is just horrible. The Apostle Paul calls this behavior a behavior that is, quote, against nature in Romans 1, 26 and 27. And that idea of this relationship of men wanting to be with men, women wanting to be with women is not, as many people want to insert without warrant, addressing some unacceptable variation of the behavior. If you understand what I'm saying, they're going, no, the behavior is okay, it's it's an unacceptable variation of the behavior that makes it wrong. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying, and I'm going to give you a couple of verses in a second where you see the verses hold up on their own. It's the behavior itself. Other passages, and there are many of them, it's not a hard argument to make. Starting in the Old Testament, Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. So that's fairly clear without using the word homosexual. It's a behavior. By the way, just to add to the discussion, you know, we live in a culture where people identify as something. But it's, not a, it's not really addressing what you identify as. It's addressing a behavior. The only thing Christians should identify as in terms of who who at my heart am I is I'm a Christian. And I'm a Christian father and a Christian husband and a Christian pastor and a Christian citizen. That's got to be my identity, not some behavior that I engage in. I mean, you know, I played volleyball in college. I know, you know, one of these days when I pass away, it's interesting when you read obituaries or little articles in the Daily Breeze, and they find the per- what the person was best known as. You know, I'm hoping it will not say, a South Bay volleyball player died this week. I, mean, I, I don't want that to be my identity. You know, and they probably won't say, a South Bay Christian, I'll take pastor, I'll go with that. But we have this identity that we kind of impose upon ourselves to become a big thing today. Going on, though, Leviticus 20, 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. And again, there are many other passages in the Old Testament, but moving into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And, you know, whenever he says do not be deceived, it's probably because people are being deceived. Right? He's just not throwing that in there. Because during the time of this writing, 
you know, sex, sexual deviations in first century Rome were pretty broad. It, I'm going to get to that in a second, but it's not as if this is a new thing. But at Corinth especially, that's going to weave itself into the church, and they were a church kind of going, look at, you know, if, if Jesus died for you, you can live any way you want. It doesn't matter. You're not under the law and so forth. Paul's taking issue with that. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there it is. And I'm not going to get into the detail of the Greek there, but in the Greek it actually mentions the two partners. If you want to know more about that, you can ask me in in Q&A. Again, we see Paul in his pastoral epistle to Timothy writing this in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11. And he lists this among those behaviors that are unholy and profane. He's talking about for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. On and on. Friends, this should not be a matter of confusion. You, you have to play some serious biblical gymnastics to turn this into something other than what it actually is. When Jesus was asked about divorce, he explained that from the beginning, because marriage, you know, with people having multiple wives and all these divorces going on at that time, he goes all the way back to creation. Right, So you can't get, let's not confuse this. At the very beginning, God made us male and female, which is its own controversy today, right? And that a man is to be joined to his wife, and the two become one. Simply put. It's not a confusing biblical doctrine. Secondly, though, where is this coming from? Um, I kind of feel like you guys know what it means to be gas, to gaslight, right? Where all of a sudden you just feel, am I crazy? Like you're convincing me. You know, you put three fingers up and everybody in the room says there's four fingers up and you're like, and they do studies like this, right? How many fingers? And if everybody in the room says four, you're like four. <laughs> oh, man, there's three. I mean... That's what I feel has happened in our entire culture. We've all been gaslighted. Where's this coming from? What what leads to this? The norm, which began with Adam and Eve, has always, in virtually every culture, been predominant. I mean, we live in a world where every culture that's ever existed has had men and women marrying each other. Yet at the same time, as I mentioned a little while ago, flare-ups enter into the scene. It's pretty easy to document that in, among the Greeks, this happened. Not only homosexual relationships, but relationships with young children. It happened among the Romans. It happened, actually, you know, toward the end of the, the medieval time period. I mean, so these things, they show up from time to time. Matter of fact, I think it's been documented that oftentimes this type of thing shows up just prior to nations crumbling on themselves. 
So it's, you've got this kind of, you know, uh, you know, prosperity, depravity, and then captivity cycle going on throughout history. There are a lot of theories as to why this happens. I'd like to offer what I think is a biblical theory, something I call the great exchange. The Apostle Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, speaks of this great exchange. Now, keep this in mind, in all humility. The Apostle Paul, in this portion of Romans, is making an argument for the total depravity of all of humanity. Right? He's, he's basically making an argument going, this is where we will all end up apart from the grace of God. So there's, there's a universal problem, the universal problem of sin. Right? We all know God is, and yet we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. What we see in the first ex- exchange is that we exchange the worship of the creator for the worship of the creation. That's the first exchange, which we see today in spades. Right? It's kind of like, I'll worship anybody but, but God. I think uh, G.K. Chesterton said, you know, when we disbelieve in God, it's not as if we don't believe in anything. So we will believe. We will believe, when we decide we don't believe in God, we'll believe anything. There's an exchange that takes place over and against, you know, what our atheist friends will say when you start talking about the tenets of atheism. They'll be like, no, no, no. I don't, my atheism is not me believing anything. It's me not believing. But atheism is not mere subtraction, friends. It's an exchange. You're exchanging one thing for another. And you're exchanging the worship of the creator for the worship of the creation. And then we see Paul talk about another exchange. He says they've exchanged the truth for a lie. So you've exchanged who you worship. And we, as a result of the fall, live a lie. The fall has affected the human race in that regard. We come forth, it says in Psalm 58, we come forth from the womb Speaking lies. I mean, that's the condition. That's why Jesus came, right? Jesus came and he's like, look, look at it. if there's no sick people, I don't need to be here. And by sick, he meant sinful. There's no, a doctor's not needed. But the doctor was needed because we have a, a world full of people who've been so affected by sin. And if we need a sacrament to point that out, I got one for you. It's called death. It's on all of our calendars. And though death is inevitable and universal, it is not natural. Death is a result of a curse, as a result of a rebellion. And we need help. And Paul's making this argument. Humanity has exchanged the creator for the, with the creation. He's exchanged the truth for the lie. And then we see another exchange that he, where he goes to. And he says, and now they have exchanged the natural use of the man or the woman for the unnatural use of somebody who's not of the other sex. So what you have, the order of this is, when we decide that we have the authority to determine right and wrong, the natural result of that initially 
will affect human sexuality. That's Paul's argument. Now, as Romans goes on, that first chapter goes on, he's going to address a lot of other behaviors. The end of chapter 1, he goes into a long list, but he starts with this. Because at the very beginning, it was Adam and Eve. They were the, that, Adam and Eve were the crown of God's creation. And if you're the enemy, that's what you want to destroy. And when people reject the truth of the living God, that is the natural direction. Sodom and Gomorrah did not become Sodom and Gomorrah overnight. It's a long, discursive, incremental darkness that takes place. Friends, it is a mistake to minimize the darkness of this. Paul, as I said, he, he crescendos his argument in Romans 1 by including a large, although not exhaustive, list of evils. He's going to be like going, and then you're going to do this and this and this and this. And he says, not only will you do it, you're going to encourage others to do it. And not only are you going to encourage others to do it, knowing that it's worthy of death, you're going to do it all the more. That's the darkness of the direction that is taking place. So it's, it's no mere coincidence that this direction that we've taken as a culture sexually rapidly followed the direction that we took as a culture religiously. Those one, the one thing goes right to the next. We have to recognize that the LGBTQ plus is distinct. People will say, and I'll get this a little bit in the common objection, objections, they'll be like, why are you focusing on this? Why is this such a big deal? And I'll get to that in a second, but here's the deal. There's no, you talk about the Ten Commandments, right? There's no Pride Month for adultery. There's no Pride Month for stealing. There's no Pride Month for lying. It's, this is unique in terms of, no, this isn't just you, you know, forgiving me. I remember having a conversation with an old friend of mine who was, again, you know, who's a, who was a well-educated leader in the educational community. And I don't, we were at an event, and I don't even know how this conversation got started. And she was like, kind of like confused because she knew me from college and she knew I wasn't an angry, hateful, cruel bigot. Like, you seem like such a nice guy. I think I am kind of a nice guy, right? And so she was like vexed. And she's like, isn't there forgiveness? Well, I don't understand what the problem is. Isn't there forgiveness? And I remember saying, well, do they want forgiveness? Because if you tell them there's forgiveness you're going to get in a lot of trouble because you only want forgiveness for things that are wrong. They don't, it's, 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 a, it's not I want forgiveness for something I'm doing that's wrong. It's I need you to endorse and sanction and celebrate that what I am doing is right. And again, I think the biggest problem here is this will not lead somebody to Christ. I acknowledge, David says, I acknowledge my sin before you and I received your forgiveness. We need to acknowledge our sin to receive that forgiveness. Now, as a Christian, we might find it a bit overwhelming 
I mean, the preponderance of this behavior, you can't watch a movie or a television show or read a book or open the newspaper. Or, it's just all over the place. And it, it, I have to say, it has caused me to, to go, am I getting this wrong? Like, it's so predominant. I'm like, am I missing something here? And I've had to, like, go back, you know, back into the lab and put the passages back on the table and, and reevaluate. I mean, it is massively emblazoned in every conceivable venue that you find yourself. I don't, I don't envy the difficulty of you younger people in the world that's ahead of you. And it's also difficult, not only because of the massive you know, inculcation of it and bombardment of it. It's also difficult because we all know homosexual people, I'm guessing, most, some of us do, who by every other human metric are the terribly enjoyable people, like wonderfully enjoyable people. And so now you're kind of going, oh, wait a minute, they are the, they're like the nicest people. They're generous, they're friendly, they're funny, they're hardworking. Like in every other way, you're kind of going... I have a lot of Christian friends who aren't as nice as they are. And so now you're dealing with that. I remember um, years ago, I had led this young man to Christ when I was doing a mission trip in Hawaii. And uh, he was like a teenager, and he was so excited about his faith. And then I left, and then he went away to college. And... um, got involved in homosexual behavior, got AIDS, and died. And this was obviously when that was kind of almost uniquely fatal. And I, at the time, I remember at the time kind of, I made a list of all my friends who were homosexual who had died of AIDS. And I filled a whole page. I mean, it was, it was breaking my heart that this was something that had just become like, like a, such a besetting sin that they could, couldn't get out of it. And they were willing to face possible death. It's not easy to be in a culture where you've gone down this direction and all of a sudden you've got this kind of plague, this exchange has been made, and we who are older have left this to the younger generation. We need to be sensitive to the fact that there's a tug on this, there's a pull on this that is not easy for them to walk away from. We can't just be kind of an old curmudgeon going, well, in my day. We've got to realize that there's something very powerful about this, this draw, yet at the same time, be uncompromising about the truth. I have to say, sometimes that's a, there's a delicate balance there. I guess, though, here I'm just kind of asking if you understand and if you are willing to have the disposition that the Apostle Paul has told us to have, and that is, let God be true and every man a liar. Are you willing to kind of go look at, you know, are we willing to have, you know, the uh, Elijah complex, right? I and I alone am left to serve the Lord, not in a proud way, but kind of going, look at that's just the way it is. I mean, maybe you begin to get a little bit of a feel for how the original apostles must have felt when they were the, by far the minority. 
in a very hostile environment. And don't forget this in all of this. This is, these words where Paul is addressing this in Romans is an indictment against all humanity. We must always remember this. There but for the grace of God go I is not an empty slogan. It's real. And you need to maintain a spirit of humility in the engagement of this because it could just as easily be you apart from the grace of God. Well, third, some common objections. And I just, again, there's more than I can handle in one message. So I'm going to hit on a few of the ones that are most asked. And if you want to stay during Q&A today, you know, we can talk more about it. But perhaps the most commonly asked question with a lot of research having been dedicated to this is how can there be an objection if God has made someone a certain way? God made me this way. Are you saying God made a mistake? I mean, again, there's teeth to the logic, at least initially unexamined, of that statement because it hardly seems reasonable to object to hardwired machinery Now, let me just say, first, it's not been proven that people are born that way. They say it's been proven, but it's not. I'm not even sure if you can prove it. But even if it could be proven, it does not sufficiently address the issue. And let me explain why. Desires. You have them, I have them. They may be attached to us biologically. They may be attached to us psychologically. They may be attached to us kind of environmentally, we all have them, some of them are good, some of them are bad. But ethics, morality, has to transcend human desire. Since both our physical makeup, our biological, psychological makeup, our environmental surroundings have all been affected by a thing called the fall. I remember years ago in the LA Times, they had this big article, and the headline was, The Sin Gene. Right? They found a gene in your DNA that was the reason for, the, for sinning. And I'm like, yeah, every gene in your body. <laughs> but even that, even remember reading the article going, well, okay, you're talking about what's going on in us chemically. But, but what other system are you using to determine that it's a sin in the first place? There's got to be some agreement on what sin is in order for us to know that the gene is actually causing us to do something different. But my point here is the way the fall has affected humanity, the fact that you could, even if you found in me some type of gene or genetic predisposition toward a certain behavior does not justify the behavior. I mean, I might be homophobic. You might, there might be a gene for homophobia. Does that, will, will the people I'm disagreeing with then justify my homophobia? Now, does that become okay because there's a gene for it? Because they keep telling me to change. So now we have to say, well, you think I should change? I think you should change. And if we find genes to justify that, where do we go with that? No, ethics has to be Transcendent. What I mean by that, it's got to be above us all. You don't determine what's right based upon your desires. 
minute ago, we read Psalm 58. It said, we come forth from the womb speaking lies. We, we are genetically predisposed to lying. Does that justify lying? No. That's why we're so lost as a culture, because we've, we've, you know, we've subtracted God. But we don't, and, and the exchange has been made in terms of our behavior, but most people don't know why they think things are right or wrong. And you end, up, you end up with those empty slogans, right? Whatever makes the most people the most happy. You know, the social contract. On and on, you know, all these things. None of them survive the test. There's only one thing that survives the test, friends, and that is that there is a God in heaven who's absolute, who's authoritative, who's righteous, and has conveyed what righteousness is to us through his word. When we lose that, we lose the farm. Another objection that you hear, and I, you know, and I've mentioned this in the abortion sermon, and I, you know, I'm trying to be aware of my own tone. I mean, <laughs> I'm a child of the '60s. By my nature, everything's okay. Like I had to make the adjustment to kind of the more biblical, conservative ethical views. I didn't, I didn't have to, you know, move in the other direction. So. I'm like, wow, this seems kind of tough. The law of God, it's pretty hard to keep. Matter of fact, it's impossible, right? But with Christ, all things are possible. But that's where we go as, as Christians. But somebody will argue, isn't it unloving and judgmental, like a bad judgmental, to be unaccepting of the behaviors of others? You know, that's the one you hear. Like, you know, you Christians, aren't you supposed to be accepting of others? Did not Jesus dine with sinners? Mic drop, you know. It is a very common critique that it's wrong to be unaccepting of the behaviors of others. Of course, what goes, I think, unnoticed is that the person offering these critiques is generally trying to change your behavior. I mean, that knife cuts both ways. If it's wrong... To not accept the behavior of another person, why are you trying to change my behavior? You, you should accept my behavior, but we all know that doesn't work. Then it be, because now it just becomes table pounding. You're right, I'm right, you're right, I'm right. Or, if you're the leader of a nation, you start taking over other countries. I mean, if there's not some transcendent, eth- transcendent ethic, and you are the ultimate source of what is good and right and true, then you're, you're going to use all of your power to do what you think is right. And history is full of tragedies utilizing that methodology. But all that to say, it is true that Jesus dined with sinners. But in the account, at least one of the accounts where we read of that taking place, we also read his words where he says, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus would have dinner with the sinners. People, Jesus met people where they were. How, how could it be any other way, right? I mean, when you meet me, this is who you're meeting. But he never left them that way. We need to be willing and have the courage to recognize that it's a great act of love for the, to care for the well-being, especially spiritual well-being, not to mention 
marital well-being. And you know, when I meet with young people who are struggling with any one of these things, right? Because it's LGBTQ plus, and I'll sit down, and one of the first things in my mind is they've got a really rough future ahead of them. This is going to be really tough if they give in to this. And so it's not a matter of, oh, this is yucky, or I don't like, you know, get out of my office, or whatever. It's a matter of kind of going, look at, this is going in a bad direction for your life. And you need to care. I mean, I know you're not all pastors, but you need to care. Especially when we recognize the Apostle Paul has said, you know, don't be deceived. People who engage in this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's kind of like going, no, there's, there's no gay Christian. You might be a Christian who struggles with it, but we all struggle with sin. I mean, that's just part of the program, right? We, that's the fight we're in. But we don't redefine it. And you need to love people and care enough about people to kind of at some level let them know this is a wrong direction that you're going. It's not always easy. I remember when I was at El Camino College and I was, a, again, a kind of a brand new Christian and I was in the cafeteria and there was a guy in there and I was sharing my faith with him. He's a big muscular guy. He's like, yeah, no, man, I, be- I believe. I believe in the Bible. I believe in Jesus. I believe in all that stuff. I'm like, awesome. He goes, but I really like the ladies, man. Okay, I don't want to give up the ladies. And I'm like, what? That's not the way it works. You know, you, I, 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 I want to be sensitive to your struggle, but you're like going, I got, hey, there's one thing, you know, there's just one little category that I'm going to keep for myself. You know, that's not the way it works. It is often argued, and you might hear this, that the self-destructive nature of those who've moved away from the biblical model of husband and wife is due to their being unaccepted by society. I mean, you've heard this? They they don't live very long. There's a lot of suicide. And they will argue that the fact that they are are persecuted people is the reason that they're self-destructive. So the problem isn't them. The problem is you, and you need to accept this. But here's what you need to understand. Historically, this has never been the behavior of persecuted people. The black slaves, the Jews during the, in Europe in the 30s, the, the Armenians under the Turks, on and on and on. All the persecuted people in history never had a problem with self-destruction. There's something else going on here that is going on in their souls, in their psyches, that is causing them to be self-destructive. And they're, they're going to deflect. They're going to try to blame you. But that's, it's an unwarranted accusation. It doesn't... It doesn't hold water. Well, okay, I'm going to have to wrap this up. But a couple other things real quickly. The golden rule. Maybe you've heard that one, right? I thought you said treat others. Jesus said treat others the way you want to be treated. Well, oh, you're also going to be accused of cherry picking. Well, you're just picking that one. Why don't you, why, and why is this such a big deal? And I'm going to finish with these. First of all, you have to understand the golden rule. The golden rule has boundaries. The golden rule is not whatever you want somebody to do to you, you do to somebody else. I mean, again, let's test it. If you're a, you know what a masochist is? A masochist is somebody who likes to be hurt. And it's got other connotations to it. But they like to be hurt. It doesn't follow that because I like to be hurt that I'm going to go ahead and hurt you. Because I'm going to do unto you as I would want you to do unto me. No, even when Jesus taught 
the golden rule. He taught it within the boundaries of the law and the prophets. Not just whatever you feel like having done to you, do to somebody else, which is where they go with this. So it's a misuse of the golden rule. As far as cherry picking goes, you guys know what it means to cherry pick? It's where you kind of go, I'm going to get my Bible and I'm just going to pick the things that I, that I like. Well, I'm going to tell you this, that if people, if there are people who have a predisposed distaste for LGBTQ and have picked Christianity because it accommodates their predisposed distaste, they're like going, I don't like homosexual people, so I want to find a religion that accommodates my hatred. And they pick Christianity. Well, they've really misunderstood Christianity, and I'm going to tell you that's a pretty dark move to make. Cherry picking. Paul said, let's preach the full counsel. You've got to preach the full counsel. The world loves to accuse you of cherry picking, Right? But it's easy to accuse other people of cherry picking when you don't have a tree. Like, they don't even have a tree to cherry pick from. They're just being governed by whatever the desire is. I'm not saying that in a mean way. That's just the way it is. That's just the reality of the situation. Finally, why is this such a big deal? And I've explained this earlier. It's a big deal because there's an aggressive effort on the part of this movement to sanction it. And there's a lot of side effects. The tentacles of that reach very deep and very far. Finally, how do we engage? What then do we do? I mean, we're in a, we are very much in a culture that is calling good evil and evil good. I mean, it's, you don't have to go very far, not in just this issue, but in many issues. First, you need to be firm in your convictions. Like you, you need to know what you believe. You can't be the double-minded. James talks about the double-minded man, right? Where you're like, oh, I'm up in the air. You, you need to, to, to resolve, to grasp and embrace that which the Bible teaches. The double-minded man is, James says, unstable in all his ways. I mean, years ago, I heard it put this way, and I think it's pretty valid. The double-minded man is the man who um, buys two eclairs, puts them in the refrigerator, and then goes in the living room and prays that he won't eat them. No, you just don't. You don't go to the bakery in the first place. Like, you're playing with it, right? You need to be firm in your convictions. You need to, at very least, understand... And be unaffected yourself. For regardless of what, how effective you are with others, you need to be unaffected yourself by the world. Right? Unstained, the Bible calls it. 1 Kings 18.21, and I won't get into the whole detail, but I, like, I love the way Elijah fought this war. <laughs> and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. We've got to have a little bit of the spirit of Elijah kind of going, look at know, know what you believe. Also, with great love and wisdom, we need to be willing to engage at some level. I don't, we're all a little different, right? And so, I, I, you know, I think there are some basic rules Ephesians 5, 11, and 12, Paul writes, Take no part 
in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Right? You've got to somehow shine a light, for it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. So at some level, we're called to be a light. People in the dark, they don't like the light. In your efforts to accomplish this, always consider, friends, your tone, your disposition. It's really easy, it's really easy when you're reviled to revile in return. And I'm pretty sure the Bible says don't do that. Right? Because you're in a culture where they will go on the attack. And you don't want them to be the model for the way you interact. You need to maintain sanity. You need to be the most sane person in the room. So guard your tone. What must it have felt like for those sinners? You ever think about this? Having dinner with Jesus. Right? I mean, we are supposed to imitate Jesus, right? And at least in some things. Not in everything. We don't imitate his call to be worshipped or something. But we imitate Jesus. And I wonder if I, if I was a sinner in that room and Jesus was sitting there, how would he be making me feel? Right? Because that's the role you're called to play, that you're the one in the room who is the ambassador for Christ. He has ascended, but he has sent his spirit. His spirit grabbed you and said, you're my ambassador now. You go sit in the room. What would it have been, what would it have been like for the sinner sitting next to Jesus, because that's the goal. And I get this feeling when I read about Jesus that it was very clear that he loved people and that he cared about people and that he was sacrificial toward people, that, that, that he wasn't unnecessarily vicious or angry or kind of jumping right immediately into the, into the tearing down of the temple. You know, and the, like There was a sense in which Jesus had a, a loving caring, sacrificial, patience. Do people that you know feel that you've earned that in their lives? Because if, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, if people are under the impression that you love them, you can be pretty lame in your presentation and they're going to give you elbow room. You know why? Because they know that you care, even if you're clumsy in the way you speak. So there's a whole other realm here in terms of what it means to be a good Christian neighbor. Colossians 4, 5, and 6, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And finally... we must realize that this is not so much a battle about a behavior changed as it is about a soul one. The natural carnal mind, you have to understand this, is, Paul says, is incapable, incapable of subjecting itself to the law of God. The unbeliever is incapable of subjecting himself to the law of God but then he goes on two verses later in Romans 8.11 and says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you. The answer, friends, to this problem is redemption. There is a bigger problem here than sexual desires, and there's a bigger answer than overcoming them. As John Daniel Davidson mused in writing about this issue, he said, it's, you know, we're not in a culture war, we're in a religious war. And then he said, this is merely, and I quote, the latest iteration of the rebellion that began in the garden. This is what J.R.R. Tolkien meant when he said all stories are ultimately about the fall. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us the grace and strength to be unaffected by the darkness by which we are surrounded. We do pray that we would keep ourselves unstained by the world. And yet, Father, help us not to be those who would simply retreat into the shadows. Help us to be people who would speak the truth. That Help us to, Father, be the light that you've called us to be, the salt that you've called us to be, but always, Father, with grace and tenderness. We pray, Father, in all of this, that you would grant many souls to be won in great victories, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.